when I think about that statement, my God is the ancient of days, I think of the, the statement of Scripture that says that God never changes. You know, we, we serve the same God who is the ancient of days. He is the same as he was before time began. He is the same God now. Is that not a trustworthy God? A God that can, can be relied upon, a God that we can put our trust in because he never changes. If only the same could be said about us. If only the same could be said about us. If only we could be thought of as trustworthy as God. We're going to be looking at this single verse here in, in the book of James. We've already read it. I'm not going to read it again. We'll probably end up reading it several times as we as we look at it. But um, probably most of you have read through this verse um, at least once. We've read through it today. You probably read it and you said, all right, I got the message. How's it going to pull 35 minutes out of that? Um, we're going to try. Um, <laughs> no, uh, you probably you probably have a pretty good idea of what James is talking about here, right? It's he has he has given us some pretty clear uh, statements, um, and, and so the the title of my message this evening is "Honesty is the best policy." Honesty is the best policy. I know that's a little a little silly, but it was better than some of the other ones I came up with. So. Honesty is the best policy. And, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, there was some issues for several of you with the length of my big idea. So if you'd like, you can go with my first big idea, which is just be honest. All right? Here's the big idea. For those of you who don't want to spend a bunch of time writing, you can just write be honest. Um, but the second big idea, or I should say the main big idea, a little bit longer, is this. As followers of Christ, the trustworthiness of our speech, even in the midst of trials, is vital to our reputation and the gospel of Christ. Let me read that again. As followers of Christ, the trustworthiness of our speech, even in the midst of trials, is vital to our reputation and the gospel of Christ. The reality is that trustworthiness has fallen on hard times in our society. Is that not the case? We're, uh, we used to have a saying that a man's word is his bond, right? I mean, how many of you feel comfortable saying that now? Would you agree that in this day and age, a man's word is his bond? That what a man says he's going to do, he's going he's to take care of it, it's going to happen? I would say most often that would not be the case. We don't typically think like that. In fact, all you have to do is uh, look at the, the rise in necessity of lawyers to tell you that we don't we don't think like that, right? We're always uh, hedging our bets. We're always trying to make sure that uh, that we're covered, right? In, in case somebody defaults on what they said they're going to do. Um, I actually was meeting with our attorney for our land stuff this afternoon going through a very long document that the other attorney had prepared <laughs> um, and just looking through and, and she's crossing things out and being like, no, we don't even need this, it doesn't apply, and, you know, all kinds of fun stuff. But, but we're in a day and age where even two churches 
in order to protect themselves, in order to uh, make sure that they don't take, get taken advantage of, what are we doing? We're putting a contract together, right? Well, part of that's legally required by government, things like that. But, but we're, we're putting together this big contract with all these legal terms to make sure that no one defrauds each other. Churches, you know. Um, but you don't have to look very far in society to see that uh, trustworthiness is lacking. Um, just simple sales tactics. Uh, if you've ever taken a sales course, basically your number one goal in sales is to get the person, the client, to trust you, right? Because we don't. We don't naturally trust somebody who knocks on our door. Um, it's kind of funny, you know, we don't trust somebody, even if we filled out a form, like a paper form or, a, or an online form or something like that, requesting information, we still don't trust the sales guy, <laughs> right? Because surely they're doing something you know, there's some clause or there's something that we, we're going to forget about to ask and we're going to take it, you know, and, and lose our money. But even things that we, we used to even rely on, right, as trustworthiness, employer and employee relationships. It used to be that there was, there was a lot of loyalty between a company and an employee. And employees would be a company for decades. And that's, that's not the case now. I used to think it was kind of rare for, for my industry, the average time for a developer at a company is about two years. Um, and it's not always the developer's fault. <laughs> sometimes it's their choice, sometimes it's the company's choice. It's, it's just a weird thing. But as I begin to look at, around, it seems like more and more companies and employees have less and less trustworthiness. You know, the, the handbooks for employees are getting thicker. Uh, because they don't trust you. Think about now, we've got so many people working from home who weren't working from home before. That's a hard thing for companies to accept. <laughs> they, they, don't, they don't like you know, not being able to see you and know what you're doing every minute of the day. Why? Because they don't trust you. They don't trust you, and for good reason, because people are not trustworthy. Politicians and constituents... I mean, have we ever really trusted them? I don't know. Maybe, maybe early, early on we trusted them a little bit. But there's not a lot of trust there. What about husbands and wives? Trust in, in the marriage relationship? Not a lot. Just look at the divorce rate. The remarriage rate. The re-divorce rate. Not a lot of trustworthiness in those relationships. But perhaps the worst is Christians and Christians. I don't know about you, but it seems like to me, trustworthiness from one believer to another, even within the same church, oftentimes is greatly promoted in our society. And why is that? It's because we fail to live trustworthy lives. We fail to back up the things that we say with the actions that we live. As we come to this verse in James chapter 5, it's kind of in a weird place, right? It, it, it doesn't really seem to match the, the passage right above it. We talked about, a couple weeks ago, we talked about patience, right? And James was urging the church to be patient through these trials, through these tribulations. Be patient because 
Christ is coming back, so be patient even until Christ returns. If, even if that means you have to endure this trial all the way till death. Endure and be patient. And then here, in a little bit, we're going we're gonna to look at uh, prayer. And, 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 and uh, Eric's going to take us through the last, the last part of this chapter. But this verse, this one verse right in the middle of these passages, is just a little weird. It doesn't really fit with either of those two things. And it's kind of interesting. I was looking at uh, my physical copy. It's hard to see it as much in the, in the digital one. But my physical, physical copy, this verse is even kind of indented as its own thing. It doesn't have its own heading, but it's, it's indented. It's its own section. You know, everything that we read in the, you know, patience through suffering section is, is one section. But then you have a new indention. For this, it's, it's almost like the translators are like, good luck, guys. <laughs> We're not sure how to do this, but here you go. <laughs> this is what it is. And there's a, there's a lot of, um, I won't say argument or controversy, but you know, there's, there's differences of opinion as to what this, why, why it's there. What's the purpose of this, of this one verse? And why is it put there? Well, I think if nothing else, we need to remember the context of the entire book. And it's interesting, as I was looking, uh, as I was doing research, and as, as I was uh, even listening to other sermons about this, this verse and things like that, um, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of sermons, there's a lot of uh, things about this verse out on the internet you can find, but I didn't find anybody that was really even talking about the context to whom this was written. Remember, we're dealing with people who are under oppression. Just a few verses earlier at the end of chapter 4, or at the beginning of chapter 5, we see how they are being oppressed by the rich. Right? They're, they're, they've been dispersed, so there's, there's natural problems from being dispersed from Jerusalem due to persecution. And then they're under more persecution by the rich. They're, there's infighting and backbiting in the church itself. There's a lot of problems going on here. And James says to them, above all, brothers, do not swear. In this verse, just kind of plopped right there in the, in the middle of this chapter. And I think it's important for us to remember the context of the lives of the people that this was spoken to. Why is it that they would be struggling with swearing? Now, there's a couple different words in this passage that James kind of uses um, interchangeably. One is, is more a noun, the other is a verb, but they reference the same thing. And that is swear and oath, right? So you typically you swear and oath, right? So they're, they're related, they're, this, they're the same concept, right? So if you're swearing, it's an oath. Um, so obviously this is not dealing with uh, vulgarity. Right? James is not talking to the church and saying, hey, watch your language. You know, He's not saying, I, I hear some of you are using some vulgar language and you need to stop. That's, now, if that were the case, I'm sure he would say that. But that's not the context of what he is, uh, what he's talking about in this passage. Instead, he's talking about something really that has been uh, a problem or something that the Lord has dealt with in the lives of the Israelites since way back at the beginning of the law. All right, this is something, again, remember who James is talking to. He's talking to Jews who have believed in Christ and are now dispersed from Jerusalem 
due to persecution. So he's talking to Jews who would understand the context that he is pointing them back to. They understand what he means when he says, do not swear and and don't take an oath, don't take any oath. They're going to recognize the context. So I think it's important for us as we begin, we get into this passage to go back and get an idea of the context of this phrase. So as we jump into this verse here, the first three words can be a little confusing, right? If you think about everything that James has said to this point, when we come to this verse, this standalone verse, pretty much from what we can tell, um, and, and James says, but above all, but above all, all right? So James is going to take everything that he's taught them in the last five chapters, four chapters, and now he says, but above all. And that, that seems a little odd, right? That this call to... Do I do something? I'm not sure. Hang on. I don't know. We'll see. All right. So it seems a little odd that he would say, above all these other things... Don't swear, right? Doesn't that seem kind of kind of like an odd statement? Well, when you dig down into it, um, it's a little bit it's a little bit more than just uh, but above all. Um, so when you look at the Greek, actually uh, there are there are other Greek texts besides the Bible, right? So there's other Greek texts that have lasted, and we can we can look at things in those Greek texts to help us understand. Um, how things were written in Scripture, too. Now, obviously, we don't use them for interpretation purposes, but it helps us to get an idea of the style of writing and things like that. Um, but as you look at these, um, this phrase, we, we see that this phrase actually is more of a, an idiom, right? It's more of um, like saying it's raining cats and dogs, or last week it rained cats and dogs, Right? So if we say it's raining cats and dogs, do we literally mean it's raining cats and dogs? I I hope not, (laughs) right? That would be probably pretty gross eventually. But uh, we mean it's coming down really heavy, right? But everybody in this room understands when I say it's raining cats and dogs, that it just means it's raining really heavy, right? And so what we see here, this phrase, but above all, is actually a very common uh, way of saying in conclusion, or I'm wrapping this up, right? So as we get to the end, you know, something like that, it's just an an idiomatic way of saying, hey, we're almost done, right? So I'm coming, I'm coming to a conclusion, hang with me, I've just got a few more things to say. That's basically what that phrase is. And, And I think if you, if you don't get that, you can maybe even take what is being said here out of context, out of, out of its, its place of importance and make it more important than even it should be. Obviously, it's the Word of God, so it's of utmost importance. But we don't want to treat it inaccurately. So James says, but above all, or in conclusion, right? As we come to the end, brothers, do not swear. Do not swear. This teaching is specifically regarding the practice of taking oaths in an attempt to provide some external validation to the trustworthiness of the one who is speaking 
by pointing to the trustworthiness or value of something else. All right, let me say that again. This is trying to inherently take the, the trustworthiness and, and of something else and pretend like that is applicable to me. Like, you trust this thing over here, so you should trust me. You should trust the words that I'm saying because of the trustworthiness or because of the value of this thing over here. Let me say that the oaths at their core that he's talking about, oaths in and of themselves are not evil. Did you catch that? Oaths in and of themselves are not evil or wrong. Um, I'll explain that in a minute. But as we as we look at the, the other examples of oaths in Scripture, um, I find that they generally fall into two categories. Now, these are my categories. They're not, you know, I don't think they're necessarily in any theological book or anything like that. So this is just kind of my categorization. As I looked at a lot of different oaths in Scripture, I kind of see two different categories. First, there are oaths that are designed and taken for the benefit of someone else. Oaths that are designed or taken for the benefit of someone else. This may be an oath that's requested by someone else or one offered to give uh, to give peace of mind to another. These would be very common in contractual situations as both parties would bind themselves by oaths. Uh, we see that in the example of David and Jonathan. Right? If you remember David and Jonathan and see 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 12 through 17, and Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. Right? What's he doing? He's calling upon God as a witness to what he's about to say. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow, on the third day, behold, if he, if he is well disposed towards David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he is, has been with my father. And if I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth, and Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemy. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Jonathan gives this oath to David to confirm that he would do what he had promised to do. He even requests David to give an oath back to confirm that he would reciprocate, right? That he would not harm his family when David comes to power. And we see that later on uh, with one of Jonathan's sons. We see another example of this in the story of Rahab. If you remember the story of Rahab, the spies came into Jerusalem, into Jericho, and uh, and she gave them shelter, and she even um, protected them from the guards finding them there. Even even lied to the guards and sent them on a different direction. But in Joshua chapter two, verses twelve to fourteen, it says, "Now then." This is uh, Rahab saying, speaking. Please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and my and mother 
my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. No, she says, please swear by the Lord. She's just talked right before this about how she understands that their God is the true God, that he uh, He has destroyed, he brought them out of Egypt and has destroyed anybody in their path. And she recognizes who he is and she asks them to swear by their God, by the true God, by the one God, to take this oath. In these, these two oaths, we see the severity with which these vows were kept and held as they invoked their promise to and before God. Uh, there's one more example. We won't read it, but I don't know if you remember this, the example of Jephthah in the book of Judges. Jephthah was a judge in Israel, and on his way back home, he, he asked God for, for help. And in asking God for help, he makes a vow to God and he says, God, whatever comes out of my house first when I return home, I will sacrifice as a burnt offering to you. Does anybody know what came out of his house? His daughter. As he comes to his house and he sees his daughter come out, he falls to his knees, rends his clothes in agony and in pain because he knows that the vow must be kept. These vows were very important. They were they were oaths that were that were used as a form of witness to the parties of the severity of the issue and the solemnity with which they partook in whatever the task was at hand. So the oath itself is not wrong. Even even God made oaths, right? Even God made oaths. In fact, Hebrews tells us that uh, God made an oath and because he could swear by nothing greater than himself, he swore by himself. Because there was nothing greater to, to hang in, in anyone's hat on other than God. And so God swore by himself that he would do the fact that he had proven himself already as trustworthy. He swore by that. When he, when he spoke to Abraham and, and told him what he would do for Abraham. You see that in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 18. So it's not the oath that's inherently wrong, but rather the intent behind it. And we see a second category of oaths here. And that, that second category or the second reason for giving an oath is to attempt to claim validity or surety of someone or something else as applicable to one's own word instead of his own character. So there's two goals here. The goal of the first type of oath is to help someone, to give them uh, peace, to give them comfort, to have a witness before God. The second one is, is to deceive. The second one is to take the value and the, the testimony of something else and claim it as your own so that you do not have to stand on your own character. There's two types. James is talking about the second type. James is not telling the people here, don't ever take an oath. That's not what he's saying. 
There are there have been Christian sects throughout the years who have who have made that claim. They've used this passage, they've used the passage we'll look at here in a second in Matthew chapter 5 to say you should not take any oaths. No oath is good. And you can't have that position and be consistent with the rest of Scripture because God is a God of oaths. If God is a God of oaths, then the oaths in, in and of themselves cannot be wrong. But rather, the way we use them can or can't be wrong. We see this problem it is consistent in, in Jesus' time, and it's consistent way back at the beginning of Israel as, as a nation. Let's jump to uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees here. I'm sorry, this is the Sermon on the Mount. So this is the Sermon on the Mount, and he's speaking, he says again, he's giving all these different illustrations. Right? He's giving these illustrations of, of the law, what the law says, and then he's saying, but you've got to be better. You've got to be better than the law. Because the Pharisees keep the law, and you have to be more righteous than the Pharisees in order to obtain salvation if it were something that could be attained. Right? You have to go further. And he's giving all these examples, and he comes to oaths here in verse 33. It says, again, you have heard, speaking of the law, that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely. Right? What's the law? You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Why was Jephthah so concerned when his daughter came out of that house? Because he knew that law. You shall not swear falsely, but will shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. This is a very common Understanding, Jesus says, But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. It's a little different nowadays, we can actually do that. But anyway. uh, let, let what you say be simple, yes. Or no, anything more than this comes from what? Evil. There's an evil heart behind this type of oath. These oaths were often made flippantly and rashly, uh, which points to the lack of concern and care in the words that were being said and the weight of the words that were being said. The book of Numbers, uh, chapter 5, gives... Um, it's, a, it's basically a test of idolatry for a woman, but it, it calls her to take an oath before God. Right? That was a solemn oath. And, and it says that she's not supposed to take that flippantly. Numbers, Numbers 30 talks about a woman who makes a vow outside of the authority of her father or her husband and how that is supposed to be handled. Because in some instances, this is, again, this is her stepping outside where she was supposed to be in the, in, as far as making vows. Her, her right and responsibility of making a vow. It was something that she made outside those bounds and how that was supposed to be dealt with. Leviticus chapter 5, verses 4 through 6, talks about anyone uttering a rash oath to do evil or to do good. Even if, even if you say something rashly, take an oath rashly intending for it to be good, 
You're doing it without taking into consideration the weight of the words that you are using. Jesus again speaks to the frivolous nature of this in Matthew chapter 23. Verses 16 through 22, he says, this is where he's talking to the Pharisees. And he says that, I think it's the seven woes to the Pharisees. And he gets to this one in, in verse 16. He says, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. No big deal, right? You swear by the temple, eh, it means nothing, all right? But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. If you swear by the temple, no big deal. But if you swear by the gold, you are bound. You are bound by the oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by, every, by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Jesus' point was, you are nitpicking. You are trying to find ways to take the value of something so that you can make a false claim and not be bound to it. But yet still sound sincere and serious. And that's what they were doing. And that's the tradition, that's the understanding that these people in the book of James have. As James says to them, do not Swear. Do not swear. I want to look at three very simple points from the passage this evening. Three reminders about our speech as we look at the command from James. The first one is that our words should not need external support. Our words should not need external support. Don't use rash examples. Don't use rash examples. Have you ever uh, you know, heard people say these statements? Well, I swear on a stack of Bibles, right? I swear on a stack of Bibles. Or I swear on my mother's grave, right? These flippant things that in our minds carry weight or carry value, but in reality, they don't, they don't help. They don't assist the value of my words. They're just flippant. They're, they're used rashly. They're just examples that are tossed out there in the hopes that they give us some peace, some way of accepting this person in spite of, perhaps, the character that we've already seen. Don't use rash examples. That's what we see here um, in, in, in the, the examples that we're given, right? In fact, in, in Leviticus, Leviticus, it specifically said rash, right? It used that word rash. These are rash oaths that were people make, that people were making. And, and God is telling us, don't rush into, don't rush into the words that you're going to say. 
don't be rash. Don't use rash examples to try to support and prop yourself up. Um, another way that we can uh, we can do this, he said, you know, he gives two examples here, right? He says, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other earth, right? He covers everything, right? Jesus did the same thing, right? He said, don't swear by these things. Just don't swear. Don't take it out, right? Don't make these rash statements about heaven or about earth or about anything. Jesus said, are the hairs of your head, how tall you are, even what you think you're going to be able to do in the future. Don't speak rashly. Don't try to assume support from other things in a rash manner. Don't name drop. Have you ever done that? Well, you know so-and-so, right? Oh, I'm friends with them. What are we trying to do? We're trying to get somebody to accept what we have to say based on the character of someone else. You know, you know so-and-so. Oh, yeah, he, he goes to my church. Or, or we're neighbors. But we're good friends. Don't name job. We don't need external support. Don't claim spiritual relationships. Well, I'm a believer. You're a believer. That should be enough, right? It's sad, but I have heard many, many times in my lifetime this phrase, I've never do business with other Christians. How sad is that? How sad is that? That non-believers and believers, I've heard it from both, would say, I will never do business with somebody who claims to be a Christian. Because you can't trust them. And yet sometimes we, we try to play that card, don't we? Well, you're a believer. I'm a believer. You can just take care of this. You can, you can trust me. Trying to get value or trustworthiness from an external source. Our words shouldn't need that. Our words should be able to stand alone. That's what James is saying. Our words should be able to stand alone. Our words should not need external support, character from someone else, value from something else, in order for other people to accept what we have to say. Because number two, our words should not oppose our actions. Our words should not oppose our actions. There should be no conflict in what we say versus what we do. What, what was the law? Don't make a vow falsely, right? If you take a vow, make sure you keep it. James says it here, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Let it stand. Let the actions that you produce match the things that you say. That's hard to do, isn't it? How often have you promised something quickly, flippantly, and failed to come from it? Failed to do it. I raised my hand. 
over and over and over. And is it any wonder that people don't trust us? That our spouses don't trust us? That our children don't trust us? That other believers don't trust us? Because we say one thing and we do something else. Let your yay be yay and your nay be nay. Your words should never oppose your actions. You know, there's kind of a third level to this that we probably don't like to go to. You know, we, we can say theologically, logically, I get it, I should say what I mean and mean what I say, right? If I say I'm going to do something, I should do it. But what if I promise something and it comes time for that thing to be due and I can't do it without it causing me harm. I'm off the hook, right? Because I mean, I shouldn't be harming myself just for a promise. I shouldn't be hurting my, my finances or my time or whatever it is that is, is harmed by me fulfilling this promise. I shouldn't have to do that, right? Listen to Psalm 15. It's very short. I'll read the whole thing. It says, David speaking obviously to the Lord, he says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell in your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does, and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, catch this, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. You know what that means? It means I took a vow and I'm going to fulfill it, even if I'm harmed. Who does not put out his money to interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent? He who does these things shall never be moved. Part of the qualities of a steadfast person is somebody who, when they make a promise, they keep it no matter what. No matter what. Yet how often do we make promises even in the church to one another. Maybe we really mean it. Maybe we're just trying to sound spiritual. How many times have you made this promise and failed to follow through? I will pray for you. How many times have you texted that to somebody or messaged that to them on Facebook or set it to their face and failed to do it. Now, I don't think most people in here are following up. You said you were going to pray for me, brother. Did you pray for me? Maybe we should. But how often do we fail in, in, in just that little instance to be trustworthy? For our actions to meet what we say.
words should not need external support because our words should not oppose our actions. And if our words are not opposing our actions, then number three, our words should not condemn us. Our words should never bring judgment upon us. But we know that God is going to judge all of our actions, but he's even going to judge our words. Did you know that? Did you know that every promise you make, every vow you take, every lie you say, every form of deception that you speak, God will judge it. It will be made known. Matthew chapter 12, verses 33 through 37. It says, either make the tree good, Jesus is speaking, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person, out of his good treasure, brings forth good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. Every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. James says... Let your yea be nay, your yes be yes, and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. God is going to judge every careless word we speak. Zechariah 8, verses 16 through 17 says, These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another, and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. And we have this term, little white lie, right? Oh, I just twisted things a little bit. Yeah, well, you know, I said maybe. Right? The dads, have you pulled that one? Guilty. I said maybe. But if you know that maybe means no, what should you say? No. Can maybe mean maybe? Sure. It could mean, I don't know right now. We'll have to figure it out. But how often is maybe really no disguised? More than it should be. All of our careless words will be judged. God hates them. You know, God's not the only one that's going to judge. Man judges too. Scripture tells us that man does look on the outward. Right? God looks at the heart. He sees, he sees the evil inside, but man sees the results. And do we not judge one another? based on the trustworthiness of their words. Are there not people in your lives that you would talk to, be kind to, hopefully, but yet pretty much anything they say, you're just like, we have a term, right? Grain of salt. Some people are salt shaker. Yeah. You're, you're probably not trusting. 
And there's a reason for that because they've lived a life that is untrustworthy. The things that they've said do not match the things that they do. Perhaps they try to claim one of those other outside things to give them support, but in reality, they've proven themselves time and time again that they're not trustworthy. All you have to do is go through the book of Proverbs and look at all the different things that Proverbs has to say about our words, about the way that we speak to one another, the way, the things that that changes in relationships. I'd encourage you to take a look through, through Proverbs and just remind yourself of the power of words in our relationships. And a lot of that has to do with not just being mean, but actually following through and being who we say. Perhaps the most sobering reality in all this is that man will judge our God by our words. Man will judge our God by the things that we say, but whether or not that matches how they that's why I said it at the beginning in the big idea that, you know, it's important not only, it's vital not only to our reputation as individuals, but it's vital to the spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How can anyone trust the gospel of Christ if the people giving it to them are untrustworthy? Why would they? Why would they listen to anything we have to say about this life or the next if we are people who are untrustworthy? If we are people who say one thing and do another, if we do not follow through? When we who name the name of Christ offer up a testimony of empty words, the lack of trustworthiness, we not only sin before God, not only ruin our own reputation, but we taint the very gospel that we claim to be true. We taint the gospel that is true. <clears throat> Even in the midst of persecution, as these people found themselves, in pain and heartache and trouble, oftentimes we just want to get out of it, right? We just will say anything to get out of the struggle and the problem that's happening right now. And when we do, it ruins the testimony of that's what James is talking about. He's telling these people, look, you, I get it. I understand where you are. You're being persecuted. There, there seems like there's no escape, and I've even told you to be patient because you may have to endure this until Jesus Christ comes or until you go to be with him. But in the midst of all that, don't sin. Don't give yourself a bad testimony. Don't become untrustworthy just to get out of the momentary pain and suffering that you're going through. Instead, be people who speak truth, who say what they mean, mean what they say, and follow through, even if it means harm to us. That's what Christ is calling us to do. Because that's how he Father, we thank you that Jesus Christ 
even though he was a friend of sinners, even though he was known as one who would who would eat with them, who would fellowship with them, who would interact with them, Father, that the righteous people, quote-unquote, of the day would look at him and, and scorn. But yet he was never tainted by the sin of others. He never once sinned with his lips. He never once gave a false vow. He never once said he would do something and didn't follow through. So many places in Scripture it talks about how Christ is our example, Father. Help us to be believers who understand the importance and the weight of the words that come out of our mouth. Not just the lack of vulgarity, but the truth, the trustworthiness. Lord, help us to be people who are trustworthy in our homes and in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our church. Help us to be people who can be trusted, not because we are trustworthy people, but because we are submitted to you. Help us to be submitted to you. To be willing to take pain and heartache and hardship if it means being people who exemplify the trustworthiness of our God. May you be glorified in this place. In your name we pray. Amen.